Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males, without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some of this is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you to eat, how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses, for whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day until the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly, and another one on the seventh day, do no work at all on these days, except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread, because it was on this very day 
that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast, from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses, and anyone, whether foreigner or native-born, who eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight... The Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you've requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said. And go, and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise they said, we will all die. 
So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. Jonathan, thank you so much for reading. I'm going to pray. The Lord will help us understand. Father, for some of us, it's a familiar story. But please, will you help us? to see it afresh, to see you afresh, please. And for any for whom it's not familiar, please open eyes. We long, as we sang earlier, to behold the Lamb. See Christ. Please help us for his sake. Amen. Some things should never be forgotten. I wonder what you'd put in that category. There are a number of events which maybe seem very important that we remember them at the moment, but will they still feel as though we need to remember them? 100 years from now, 500 years from now, will the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month mean anything 200 years from now? Will the Holocaust mean anything. No doubt it'll be remembered in history books, but will it be remembered as something that we need to remember, something that should impact our our lives now? I, I don't know. But can I say this chapter is about things that should never be forgotten. Events that happened over 3,000 years ago, and yet we are expressly told, verse 14, this is the day you're to commemorate For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Last week, we looked at the first nine of the plagues um, that God sent on uh, the Egyptians. This is the tenth. It's the final one. It's strikingly different in how it's told compared to those previous ones. This time, we're not simply told what happened. As much time really is spent telling us how it should be remembered. Instructions about the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, are interwoven actually throughout the chapter. So that as we read it, read about what happened, we're not simply looking back as as distant observers on what happened a long, long time ago. It's told in a way that draws us in. We're being called to not just observe, but participate in some way, to share in what happened. We're to read it as though it has a bearing on us today, as though it includes us. Of course, that would be especially true for Jews, for Jews, this event massively shapes their understanding of who they are, their, their whole identity. 
But the New Testament is clear that what happened on the night of that first Passover night points forward to something far, far greater, a a greater rescue from a far more terrible slavery, from a far more terrible judgment, a rescue that Jesus accomplished on the cross. It was at a Passover meal, the night before Jesus died, that he took bread and wine. And he told his disciples that what happened back then all those years ago, actually pointed forward to something even greater that's happening, about to happen as he shared the meal. He said, I'm about to give my body for you. My blood is about to be shed for you. See, what happened that first Passover, it was part of God's way of helping to prepare his people so that they would understand what Jesus would do when he died on the cross. And it's to help us understand what, it, what our response should be, how we might share in what he accomplished there. So we're going to read this chapter, not as um, sort of distant observers, but we too are being drawn in. It, it is for us. It's about something we are being called to share in too. We've said over the last few weeks that, that this whole book, in this whole book, God is revealing who he is as the Lord, as Yahweh. He's showing us what kind of God he is. Last week, in those nine rounds in the ring with Pharaoh, he could at any moment have delivered the knockout blow, but he didn't. It's as though through those nine rounds, he was revealing more and more of his power. And he was revealing something of his patience, even as Pharaoh again and again hardened his heart. But here we're getting to the knockout blow. And here we see even more what our God is like, what he's made of, if you like. In some ways, some of what we see is pretty frightening. It would have been an awful night, a horrific night for many people. In, uh, in Egypt. Yet also we're to see there is something absolutely wonderful being shown here about our God. We see his mercy, his grace, his perfect provision for us. The instructions about how it's to be remembered is really the key to, to knowing how it's to be understood how what happened then is significant for us, what we're meant to learn from it. How it's to be commemorated points to how it's to be interpreted. And the chapter focuses our attention on the Passover lamb and the unleavened bread. We're told how each of those two things would form the basis of a religious festival in its own right. A feast of Passover, the feast of unleavened bread. So I think it's right we focus on those two things, the lamb and the bread. Just see how each of those help us understand what this is meant to mean for us. What it means for us to share in what Jesus one day would accomplish. So first, 
the Lamb. Look back. Let me read from verse 3 of chapter 12. The Lord says, Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You're to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. You may take them from the sheep or the goats. First thing we're told about this lamb is that it was be carefully chosen. Not last minute grabbing the first little lamb that came to hand. It was to be chosen days in advance, actually. It was to be a lamb in its prime, year-old males. And not defective, not the lame one, not the one you wouldn't really want to keep for your breeding stock in years to come because it was a bit weedy or something. No, one without defect. And you were also to take account of the size. You were to choose a lamb that was the right size for the, the number of people you'd have round the table. Christmas Eve, Jules always gets a, a gammon, a, a vast hammon, which we're never going to get through on that night, deliberately chosen so that between Christmas and, and, and New Year, we've got masses of gammon and masses of turkey to kind of keep us going, give her a bit of a break from cooking. That's not what's going here. You no thought, we'll have a big lamb and we can have sandwiches for, the, for days to come. No. They would be very careful to choose a lamb where there was a kind of deliberate equivalence, if you like, with the household. It seems to suggest there was to be a degree of identification between the lamb and the family. Actually, for four days, the lamb was to join the family and to be taken care of in the home. Guess that would build a bond with the, with the, the, the animal. Carefully chosen, but then it was to be killed. Verse 6, take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at midnight. Imagine some of the kids... We've been playing with this lamb for the last four days. Say, oh, do we really have to eat this one? Can't you get another one? We love Larry. Um, do, we have to, do we have to eat him? Can't another one die? And the parents have to say, no. If you want your brother to live, Larry must die. It's clear the lamb was to be a substitute. In many of the other plagues, God made a distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians and the plague on the livestock. It's only the Egyptians' cattle that died. All the, the Israelites' animals were, were, were kept safe. And the plagues of hail and darkness didn't happen in the area where the Israelites lived. But this plague is different. This plague threatened every single home in the land. God was coming in judgment, judgment which in his patience he has been delaying, but which we're to understand was deserved. And it was deserved no less by the Israelites. Right from the earliest chapters of the Bible, it's clear death hangs over every single one of us. Sin and rebellion against God marks 
each and every one of us. The Israelites as much as the Egyptians. The Bible says there can be no putting right of all that is wrong in our world without judgment on sin and evil. This judgment was, like many judgments in the Bible, a preview of the day when God finally would sort out all that's wrong. God would judge this world and put things right. Here was, if you like, a time of judgment. God was bringing judgment, and the Israelites were as much at risk as anyone else. But the lamb, the lamb was a substitute, could be a substitute, a, a, a sacrificial substitute. If you look on to verse 26, we're told when, when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you, then tell them it's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. You passed day with the houses of Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes. To be called a sacrifice. Well, the Jews certainly soon would be explicitly have it explained to them. A sacrifice was something that dealt with their sin. Something that turned aside God's wrath, God's judgment. That's why the lamb was to be killed. See in verse 30, in every house there was a death that night and for so many homes it would be the death of a loved one a terrible awful night but for some it wasn't a brother or a father or a son that died because a lamb had died instead so it's carefully chosen then it was to be killed and then they're told to do something with the blood look back to verse 7 then they would take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. And we might say, what on earth is that all about? Look on to verse 13. And they're told the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you. So it's a sign to them in part. You might say, how, how is it a sign to them? Well, it was a sign that what protected them was the death of a substitute. They weren't being kept safe because they were Israelites, because the firstborn son was circumcised. They were safe, the blood said, because a lamb had died instead. I imagine the son checking that blood very, very carefully. When I go on holiday, I will check my passports many, many times. But when I pack, I'll make sure I've got it. And then before loading the car, I'll just make sure I know where it is. And sometimes, having driven 50 yards, I will stop the car and say, can we just all of us just make sure we've got our passports? And I imagine the, the firstborn son doing something like that, just going out the check, asking his dad, do you think... Do you think we ought to just add a little bit more up there? I guess the dad would say, no, you can see it. You can see it. I'm sure the Lord can see it too. Because it was also a sign to God. God says, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. And it's not that God needed just a sort of sign to sort of show who were his people. He knew who his people were. This wasn't just any old sign, it was blood. 
And again, the Israelites would very soon be taught the significance of blood. Blood, sacrificial blood, turns aside God's wrath. When he sees sacrificial blood, God knows his his justice has been satisfied. His wrath is turned away. So blood on the doorpost. But then finally, the other final instruction is that they were to eat it, all of it. They had to be very careful to choose a lamb that was just the right size, just enough for those uh, they might invite. None to be kept for sandwiches. Everything to be eaten. And anything left, the bits that no one wanted to eat, uh, was to be burnt up. Look at verse 10. Don't leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This was a once-for-all provision. All of it was to be consumed, was to be, if you like, completely appropriated. What are the instructions? Why are we told this? What are we to learn? Well, as I said, the Bible is clear that uh, this is to help us understand the death of the Lord Jesus, the one who is the Lamb, as, as, John, as Tim reminded us. That's what John the Baptist said when he saw his, his cousin coming. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And at that last supper, as he ate the Passover with his disciples, he said, from now on, I want you to remember something different, not just what happened all those thousands of years ago. Remember what it pointed to. I want you to remember my body given for you, my blood shed for you. When John describes what happened at the crucifixion, he he explains how the people crucified on the side of Jesus had their legs smashed, which was a way of speeding up death for a crucified person. When they came to Jesus, they didn't break his legs. They could see he was already dead and they... They shoved a spear in his side. And John explains that by quoting from this chapter, from the end of the chapter, there's a verse that talks about how the Passover lamb, none of its bones are to be broken. And John wants us to know, Jesus died as the Passover lamb. He is the lamb without blemish or defect, as Peter says. You see, for all... The care that was meant to be taken to make sure that there was an equivalence between the lamb and the the household. A lamb could never really be a suitable substitute for a son. But God says the lamb was just a picture to help you understand. I'm going to give my firstborn for your firstborn substitute for all of you. My son is to be the true Passover lamb, absolutely spotless, absolutely perfect, the full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Anyone who will shelter under his blood, the Bible says, can be absolutely sure that they will be kept safe when God comes in judgment, as he will. Because God will know his justice has been satisfied. 
which means for all of us here, it's to remind, don't just admire what Jesus did on the cross. That's not enough. This chapter says, make it your own. Take shelter. Feed on him. And if you have, you can know and be absolutely sure that God's judgment, which each of us deserves, will not fall on us. Because he died in our place. When Moses explained all this to the elders, if you look on to verse 27, end of verse 27, we read, Then the people bowed down and worshipped. And how much more should that be our response? What a gracious God to give his firstborn to die in place of us. Well, the lamb. The lamb was to be remembered with that Passover meal every subsequent year. But there was another festival tied to this event, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So I want us to think secondly about the bread The bread, unleavened bread, was part of the original Passover meal. If you look down to verse 8, we read, That same night, they had to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Bitter herbs, probably a reminder of what we're told in chapter 1, of how their lives had been made bitter, we're told, by this cruel, oppressive slavery they were in. The bread without yeast, unleavened bread, was a feature of the Passover meal, but it's then given a feast all of its own to commemorate these events. So it's clearly significant, and we might ask, why? What's the bread meant to teach us? At the first Passover meal, the significance seems to be in part that this was a meal to be eaten in haste. There wasn't time to prove the dough and and make proper bread, leavened bread. If you look on to verse 39, bottom of the right-hand side, it says that with with the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The, The dough was without yeast because they'd been driven out of Egypt and didn't have time to repair food for themselves. In actual fact, they had four days to look after the lamb. You say, well, they, they, they could have had time, actually, to prove some dough and make some loaves for the journey. But a feature of that Passover meal was that it was to be eaten in haste. Look at verse 11. We're told, this is how you're to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. And this unleavened bread, it seems was in part a symbol of that, their imminent departure. They were to eat as if ready to leave, not in slippers and their loungewear. Do you have loungewear, that kind of thing? No, they were to eat their meal, booted up, coats on, staff in hand, ready to go, ready for a journey. And the unleavened bread, it seems, was a symbol of that. They were to eat this meal with an eye to what was about to happen. He said, as it were, with their bags packed, ready to go. You see, if the lamb teaches us a bit about what we're saved from, saved from the judgment of God that stood against each one of us, 
The bread is to be a reminder of what we're saved for. They were about to leave. Leave the land of slavery. They're being saved for freedom. This was a new beginning for them. Actually, you see how the chapter begins? The Lord says to Moses and Aaron, verse 1, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of the year. This is a new start, a new era. Not simply saved from judgment, but saved that they might be free. So verse 17, look at that. Celebrate the festival of unleveled leavened bread, because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this bread as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. The first Passover meal was eaten in haste, but God says in future, as you look back and commemorate what happened this night, that feast of Passover is to be followed by a seven-day feast of unleavened bread. And they're told, verse 16, to do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. In a few months' time, these lights are going to learn that normally one day in seven they would mark as a day of rest, a reminder of God's purpose in creation. But this was to be a, a whole week of rest, doing no work. And it's a wonderful picture of what they were being saved for, what Jesus saves us for. He saves us from judgment, judgment we deserve. We're saved for freedom, freedom from the slavery that gripped each one of us, slavery to sin, saved for rest, and rest that's not just a sort of temporary reprieve, a day off, that number seven suggests completeness. It points to the eternal rest that Jesus died to bring us into. Let me just read again from verse 17. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses. And anyone, whether foreigner or native-born, who eats anything with yeast in it, must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made with yeast wherever you live. You must eat unleavened bread. Just notice how the yeast is particularly mentioned, focused on as something that they were to avoid. And those stipulations about yeast would come to have an added significance. Yeast would be associated with corruption, sin and evil that so easily spreads and corrupts. And just as they had to leave behind any piece of yeasted dough, which normally they would have added to their dough to, to, to leaven it and prove it, if it's like they were to leave all that was of Egypt, leave behind their old ways, their old life, this was to be for them a new start, a fresh start, saved for freedom, saved for purity. Actually, that's how Paul understands it. Let me just read what Paul writes to the Corinthian church. 
He says, don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new, unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, meaning the festival of unleavened bread, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This redemption in Exodus 12 is not just about getting the Israelites out of Egypt. It was meant to symbolize also getting Egypt out of the Israelites. They were to leave the old behind. As we read on, we're going to see that was a lot harder, getting Egypt out of them. But that is what Jesus' death accomplished for us. He saved us from condemnation because he took what we deserved. He died in our place as the lamb. But he also saved us for freedom. He freed us from sin's grip in the here and now. One day he will free us from sin's presence forever and completely that we might be spotless and blameless, that we might be finally like the Son himself. The Lamb, a picture of what we're saved from. The bread, to remind us what we're saved for. Not to stay in Egypt, but being set free. And one day, we're to be set free from sin entirely. Just very briefly as we close, let me apply it. First to those Maybe some here who've not yet trusted Christ for yourself. I just need to say, there was only one way to be safe that first Passover. It wasn't enough to do some, make some generous donation to a charity, or to pray, or to do some good deeds. The only way to be safe was to shelter under the blood of a lamb, to sit at the table, eat what God had graciously provided and make it your own. And the Bible says there is only one way for any of us to be safe when God finally comes in judgment on the world. All of us deserve his judgment. Yet if we trust Jesus' death for us, we need not fear. We know we're perfectly safe. Apart from Christ, we are not safe at all. Jesus said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. I'd love to help anyone here who wants to know how to find shelter in the death of the Lord Jesus. Most of us, of course, have done that. And the lesson of this chapter for us, I think, is simply, keep remembering it. My Christian life is a mixture of amnesia and deja vu. Again and again, I think to myself, I've forgotten that before. And and, and I have. I keep having to learn the same lessons again and again and again. Feel guilty. Feel unworthy. Because I forget my sin has been dealt with. There's now no condemnation. I feel the grip of ongoing sin and temptation. I forget I've been set free. Sin is no more my master. 
Maybe at times we're spiritually lazy. We, we give up the fight. We're a bit stuck. We forget we've been saved to live a holy life in the Lord Jesus. We need to keep remembering what he's done. Keep marveling at what he's done as we will for all eternity. Joining in that heavenly chorus and singing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Let me pray. Father, please help us to remember, not just to remember what happened. It will be a familiar story to many of us, but we need to keep remembering, appropriating, trusting. Please help us to do that. For Jesus' sake. Amen.